Hello and welcome to the Diageo Bar Academy podcast, Bar Chat. Join me, your host, Tristan Stevenson, as I chat to some of the biggest and best names in the industry on a whole range of bar-related topics. From the finer details of spirits and cocktails to the latest global trends. We hope you're inspired by the variety of episodes available. Okay, it's a full house in the studio for this episode of Bar Chat, because there's four of us when there's normally three. I'm not going to get a word in edgeways, which is probably a good thing. So, we have, joining us today for this special sustainability episode of the podcast, James Fowler, who is the founder and owner of a bunch of venues down in Bournemouth direction. We've got Larder House, Terroir, and newly opened Cheesemongery uh, <laughs> Parliamentary. Hi, James. Hi, good morning. Uh, then we've got Lauren Moat, who is a little, slightly shorter job title, but a very good job title, I think we'll agree. Diageo Global Cocktailian. Buongiorno. <laughs> International traveller as well, hence the uh, other language she's using there. Uh, and we've got Linda O'Flynn, who is the head bartender at Cask Hi. in Cork, right? Yep, that's right. And thank you for coming in as well. So we are here to talk a little bit about sustainability, which is definitely one of the hottest buzzwords in the industry right now for very good reason um so let's start by sort of asking each of you what sustainability means to you let's go with you first linda if that's all right uh yeah i guess for me uh sustainability is such a broad concept um it kind of starts for me with um nature and the fact that it generally doesn't create any waste so we would try to mimic that in the bar where we any natural waste that we produce we take that and we give it back to the earth and then anything that's man-made that we can't give back to the earth that we reduce our use of that or find an alternative or um yeah so it's trying to minimize our impact on the environment and not compromise what we're doing when we when we do that mm, so it's like sort of working in harmony in a natural way uh, yeah we're possible mi- mimicking nature in the yeah. operation cool interesting and um, what about your venues james because i know you've you've taken particularly with one of them tower an extreme approach to sustainability it's really quite commendable so what does sustainability mean to you yeah, to me personally, I mean, I love nature. Um, I studied marine biology at university, so I kind of got to understand what's going on in the oceans. And um, for me, it's actually been brilliant to apply some of the things that we've learned about, especially when it comes to sourcing seafood. Um, but Tewar, um, the kind of sustainable restaurant, was kind of developed from, we wanted to open another venue, a bit of a kind of high-paced tapas style, as opposed to the, the other formal restaurant that I've got. And I just kind of felt that social responsibility to build it and design it in the most eco-possible way because um, there's materials out there now and there's ways and concepts of doing it. Um, so all the way through through the food and drink menu, we basically use super-localised super products as much as possible. And if we can't um, literally get anything that's local, we kind of make our own versions of it in our drinks and food. Um, it's really awkward for the bartenders and the chefs, but it, you know it's a, it's a real challenge to kind of replicate global flavours using local, like um, yeah, our own versions of it. Mm. And what about you, Lauren? What does sustainability mean to you? Because you travel around a lot and you talk about this a lot as well. I know. Um, so what, what, what insight have you got into the sort of mood on sustainability across the world? Well, I 100% agree with Linda and with, uh, is it James or Jimmy? What do you prefer? Um, either or. Okay. It's James right now, but by the end of the podcast, Jimmy I'd like James. to think okay. it'll be Jimmy. <laughs> Jimmy James. Um, I, I agree fundamentally with both of you. And, um, you know, this is my 20th year as a, as a bartender this year. And I've, I've traveled to over 60 countries over the last probably seven years. And I've 
revisited some of the same countries more than twice or three times. And I also come from the food world. And my biggest, uh, I guess, mentors and, and people that I would look to for uh, the answers on how to move forward always came from chefs and farmers rather than bartenders. I also come from, you know, the edge of the universe on the, the western coast of, of Canada. So we actually had more in common with understanding this uh, sustainability piece as it relates to the growing food industry from, you know, the 1970s, 80s, 90s, uh, up until this moment. So I, I felt that my perspective on sustainability within the industry and how I could play a role in that um, would be start with chefs and start with farms first and see how we can trickle that into the bar. And I think all all of us are actually speaking the same language here. And I'd love to share over the course of this podcast what, what we've seen in some other parts of the world. Mm. It's interesting what you say about the kind of necessity to be sustainable when you are you know, operating in a far-flung place. I feel like, in a way, a lot of the practices that are being put in place in bars in cities now are things that would have just have to have happened uh, naturally in the past due to the necessity of waiting for the seasons, to minimising waste because you've really got nowhere to put it, um, sourcing locally. So, in a way, a lot of this sustainability stuff feels like a return to old values. Mm-hmm. Um so and that kind of, for me makes it all the more satisfying, you know, because it's things that we know. This is stuff that we've done before, not us, but you know, people who came before, mm-hmm. humans, uh, human beings that came before us. That's exactly it. <laughs> Thanks for clarifying yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> not animals, but humans. <laughs> um, so, James, back to you. I, what, I want to hear a little bit more about some of the stuff that you're doing at Terroir, and I'm pretty sure that anyone listening to this podcast will be really super impressed by some of the stuff you're doing, but. First of all, can you give a few tips on some of the simpler things that any bar or restaurant can do to reduce their carbon footprint, um, to reduce the amount of waste they're producing, and just generally have a slightly more sustainable business? Yeah, of course. Well, the the whole terroir concept started by my obsession with going through the bins at work. (laughs) It sounds a bit bizarre, but... um... (laughs) Just kind of having a look occasionally and seeing what what gets thrown out by the kitchens and by the bartenders. Um, had a few bartenders in the past that just take the peel off oranges and throw the rest of the orange away. Oh. It's mm. just to garnish it old fashioned, you know. And that kind of really, you know, or bags of brown mint, like whole bags, mm. and then just get stuck at the back of fridges. So, I, you know, that kind they of they do describe. have a tendency to cling to the wall of fridges. <laughs> yeah, they do. They? They do. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that kind of. Push on and so basically look at what you're throwing away and then kind of you know work from there backwards i guess yeah. um deliveries is obviously the the big one in terms of ordering fresh products and packaging um so we refuse all packaging at Tewa. Um we basically got delivery boxes that um all the delivery people have to use to bring everything in um they go through our washing machines as well so they're all hygienic so all our fish meat everything comes through there um we basically just compost everything, so we don't have anything that's printed or you know no business cards or anything at all. It's all digital. Um, and in terms of sourceability, it's literally all sourced from um, eight kilometres away from the, the restaurant. Luckily enough, I live on a farm, so I'm working really closely with the farmer there. I actually moved to the farm as a kind of benefit to Tawa, so not everyone's going to have that opportunity. Um, and then over the last two years, I've found other farmers literally... Again, another five-minute walk away from that farm who can produce everything all year round for us. Um, so it's, it's, you know, it's about kind of having a look around and seeing what is local and kind of getting those local ties. And I guess what you're talking about is that whole pre-industrialised um, 
where you actually used to talk to the people who grow it mm. rather than just looking at a packet and reading on the back of it, you know. Mm. Um, my farmers hassled the hell out of me trying to buy stuff and they'd call me up at random times just to come and pick up stuff. So I go around and see them every day or every two days or so, pick it up, drop it to the restaurants. So, yeah, and developing a menu that, of course, is seasonal. Um, seasons are going to drive sustainability. Um, that's a simple thing. And, you know, producing drinks and a, a menu that kind of, you know, emphasises what we're best at locally. And you've got um, an aquaponics system as well in Tower, haven't yeah, you? Yeah, we have, yeah. Go on, explain what that is. Aquaponics and hydroponics. So we've got a system called an EvaGrow. Um, so that grows all of our like micro garnishes, and then we kind of bring them on basically to use them as our herbal. Uh, I get a lot of, um, I call them the swanky herbs and um, micro yeah, micro herbs and cresses come in punnets generally in plastic bags and things. So that was kind of one area. And you want those flavours because they're, they're amazing, they're strong. Um, so, yeah, we installed a aquaponic wall, which is driven by, basically I've got these um, Nile fish called tilapia. So it's a way that they're producing a lot of protein in the kind of the third world countries. Um, but it's in this tank system, so that provides all the nutrients. It's like a closed basic system. So the, um, the nitrates that come from the fish basically feed the, feed the grow wall. So we propagate it all in the Evergrow and then it moves to the other system, which basically means we can bring things on so we can get established plants that we can use as garnishing in food and drinks mm. and to make our own cordials, um, yeah, chilies. That's fantastic. Um, and we'll come back and hear a little bit more about what you're doing at Tower in a minute because it is incredible. Every single detail has been looked at and a sustainable solution has been found to it, as far as I can tell. I haven't been able to find any fault in what you're doing just yet. <laughs> um, one thing I noticed you didn't mention is plastic straws, yeah. which is a little bit of an issue for me, plastic straws, because if we've had this incredible push to remove plastic straws and it's happened so quickly, like, you know, a, a real concerted effort from consumers and from bars and restaurants alike to effectively eradicate them. And in the last two years, they've more or less, at least in the UK and, and certain other parts of Europe, vanished altogether. But for me, I kind of feel like there's a danger that when we sort of focus on one thing like plastic straws and, um, you know, remove them from a bar and then feel very happy about doing that and pat ourselves on the back and say, well, our bars are much more sustainable operation now, that we're in danger of missing the bigger picture. And definitely still, you know, I was at um, Wimbledon watching the tennis back in the summer and uh, we were served pims to take onto the court. This is how I spend my summer days. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, big cup of Pims, paper straw, tick box, but it was in a massive plastic cup. Mm. I was like, this is insane, you know? There's, they, 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 they feel like they're doing the right thing by removing the plastic straws and putting paper instead, but there's still a huge bit of single-use plastic there that my drink's being served in. So I don't know if there's a question here or not, really. It's more of a statement. Are we in danger of potentially missing sight of the bigger sustainability uh, possibilities by just kind of covering it up with the removal of plastic straws. What do you think, Lauren? I love this topic because we love the instant gratification of feeling like we've done a, a great job both locally and, and globally on something like the plastic straw. But it doesn't change the fact that you still walk into whether you're at a, a big festival or event like similar to where you were in Wimbledon or you walk into a bar that is littering the bar with a coaster or a napkin under every single drink that is on the bar and by the end of the night based on how many guests and how many drinks are being served how much water 
there are coasters and, and paper all over the bar anyway. I mean, we've got we've got this obsession with excess. We just we we don't just use one thing. We use three when that one will do. And I think moving to you know to corn based cups, I think is great for for these you know big festivals and third space events. But it's not. One could be more sustainable to use than the other, but it doesn't necessarily negate the fact that it's still not sustainable. Mm -hmm. We still need to be making a a better concerted effort, similar to what maybe Kettle One does with our little mule cups, that these are actually reusable. Mm -hmm. We can give someone at the at the door of a festival and say, this is your beverage cup for the entire evening. And you get to take it home with you afterwards, fill it with every single drink that you would like to try. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have a cup, then you don't get a drink. Mm. And that has to be sort of that concerted effort taken by, I think, more brands and more festivals. And, um, you know, the straws are are really irritating, but still 30 years from now, regardless of, you know, taking away the straws or not, there's still going to be more plastic than fish in the ocean. So we have to, as you say, we just need to be focused on a few more of those little things that we can do regularly. You just reminded me about another tip that I could provide um, regards to like cling film. Mm. And, uh, you know, the industry are using more and more backpack bags for making like um, well, different products for mm-hmm. the bars and in kitchens and things. And that's always been one product that you can't really replace. Um, but what we do at Toa is we get a lot of bag and box wine. So I think we're gonna, as an industry, we're going to see more of those because they're easier to ship. But if you take the old, um, the old inserts out of those and you can then reseal them. So we reuse those to make our products and kind of, I think what we're trying to eradicate is that mm-hmm. single use thing mm. and that's the biggest problem. Mm. Um, you know, there is recycling, but that's not the ultimate answer for sure. It's about reducing that single use item. Mm. And mason jars can be used in the same way as backpack bags. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I don't know why we have this, um, this weird shift of, oh no, it can only be used if you're mm. making jam and these bars don't make jam. Well, here's the thing <laughs> with that. I think the vac bag thing comes, obviously it's all sous vide mm-hmm. and that comes from chefs where you need the vacuum to completely expose the surface area of a piece of meat to the liquid or fish or vegetable or whatever it might be. But of course, the beauty of making infusions in liquids, as we do, is that you know, it's already filling up all of the space of the container. So a glass jar, a box, whatever shape it is, it's going to find all the edges. So plastic bags really aren't necessary. In fact, they are probably the worst option. Um just going back to disposable cups, this is another problem I think that we've got now is that single use, um, if I get given a plastic cup, it could be that it's uh, made from like plastic and therefore needs to be recycled where possible. Um, it could be that it's made from some sort of compostable material, mm-hmm. okay? Um, or it could be that it's made from a biodegradable material because there's a difference between those two, right? And often we're not given any literature or an advice about what this material is that this cup is made from, and therefore we don't know how to dispose of it. And then to further add to that problem, I get given a compostable cup at a music event. Where is the compost heap that I'm supposed to put this thing on? And if I'm not composting it, but then probably putting it into landfill, which isn't good, right, because it then produces... um, like gases or whatever mm-hmm. bad things it won't com- it won't won't decompose properly as it's intended to do on a compost seed you're composting at cask right yeah. so tell us a little bit about your policy on how you do that and how you are sort of grading the materials that come in that can be composted and those that can't and so it depends on what type of composting that um 
what process you're using. So a lot of our food waste, because we're linked with a restaurant, um, gets taken away. And this varies country to country. Um, and then that's um, an anaerobic like biodigester, which will produce the methane. And then that's taken and used as biofuel. Mm. And then your resulting compost is then sent out to farms or reintroduced into the community. But there's this really cool project called COSP. So it's the Corp. Um, urban soil project. So basically what they're doing is trying to do a social experiment on how we can as a community remove the need for one large entity that decides how we deal with our waste and to do it as a more of a community and how we can kind of make it um, structured so that it's more circular and as everything is coming back so the soil is coming back mm. you take that soil that compost you're growing from that and it's all going back into your drinks so um, their project isn't really cool um, they're really transparent about what they do as well which I think is really important because like you said misinformation is a huge thing or just that onslaught of information you're like what, what, what's true what's not true what where to find this information so for them they're just they're, what they're doing right what they're doing wrong they're being very transparent about all yeah. of that i think they should color code it so i think like all compostable plastic should be green for example mm-hmm. biodegradable plastic should be brown keep it simple and like, then and like normal plastic can be like clear or whatever color yeah right? See, that's one of the big problems like with when you were saying about um, making that step to do say use paper straws instead of plastic so when we started doing that you they're coming wrapped in single-use plastic so we, <laughs> it's just it's bizarre because like the whole point of it is like you're removing that that issue that single-use plastic issue but it's wrapped in it so um i think it's amazing what james was saying about what they do they're just you just refuse it and not all businesses can do that but i do think that's something that we can work towards it's about demand it's like if we say this isn't acceptable then things yeah. will change you know well, i think this is the thing and this is where it's really going to come from isn't it if i mean how so james like Telling your suppliers that you're not going to refuse their packaging, you're going yeah. to refuse their packaging, mm-hmm. and this is how they're going to provide you with whatever produce you need. Yeah. And if they don't, if they, what did you say? Like if, you, if you're not going to get on board with this, then I'll uh, use someone uh, else. I've had some nightmares. I'll tell you. Um, like I say, you know, not having packaging in the first thing as an operator, it saves you money because you're not paying to get and get rid of all the cardboard and all that kind of stuff. Um, so that's another motivation for it. Um, but yeah, what I had to do, I had to talk to the suppliers, and like I say, I've got the delivery boxes for them. And basically just kind of, yeah, literally tell them how to bring it through the door. We've had so many problems there. I've lost quite a few good supplies. You just don't have the ability or more about kind of the infrastructure behind it to do it because they're so used to putting everything in plastic. And then then it comes down to the whole environmental health and the allergens um, mix mm. up of ingredients. So, you know, I was getting these lovely celeriacs. Um, but because they, they, they're on the celery allergy, they couldn't be with everything else, so they had to put them in plastic. And it's mm. like, it's daft. You know, the same person's taking them out of the ground, the same person could have, you know. Mm. So it's, you know, the environmental health agencies haven't helped with the uh, excessive use of clean film and yeah. plastics. To- it's ironic, isn't it, that mm. the environmental health are kind of the obstruction mm. in this pursuit of environmental sustainability. Yeah, it's um, a tricky one. But yeah, most suppliers, as soon as, you know, they know there's going to be a change and there is a change happening. Yeah. Have uh, you found, do you know of any other venues in your um, proximity that have adopted similar policies because they know that suppliers are on board with what you're doing? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, I, I tell lots of local restaurants and bars. Um, milk is one of the main things. So our dairy who brings us our milk, she now, we kind of uh, trialed getting 15 litre refillable tubs with little taps on them. And she does that all across Dorset now. So it's absolutely it's brilliant to see how it's ex- does expanded like that. So you're actually affecting change in that supply chain network. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's shown the way forwards, isn't it? And yeah. I think yeah. that's all it needs is some brave people to make those changes and be stubborn. 
Yeah. And then because there's some we all kind of everyone wants to do something. It's just trying to get someone to do it first and then just jump on that wagon. Because like you said about straws again, like two years, they're almost gone. So like it's amazing what we can do when we choose to to affect change. It's amazing how powerful that can be. Also, going back to the um, composting thing, Linda, you were saying you get a collection for your compostable yeah, materials. So just as part of our general collection, so we'll have waste collection yeah. and then the collection for um, our, our food waste. Uh-huh. So that goes and is biodigested. And so we also use um, worms as well. But then for us, a big problem is we have citrus waste in the bar, but it's we don't use any citrus in our, our menu drinks. So we have, obviously we make classics, so we still use citrus, but worms are not, big fans of citrus peel at all and it affects the the outcome of your um your soil as well as you're affecting your ph so just too acidic for the compost yeah and they just yeah they just won't eat it and it, it takes a long time fussy, for it to break they? down <laughs> i never considered worms to be that fussy but <laughs> they're dead right clearly <laughs> when yeah when they've got more to eat so um it's it's a big consideration so that like all of that citrus waste has to go away separately even though technically it is going to biodegrade and it will become soil it's just not suitable so it kind of says a lot about I think the types of composting that you use the the processes you use are kind of like area dependent as Mm. well so how much space you have is obviously a huge consideration Mm. some people just can't just can't do it and that's why I think projects that get communities together like a community of bars together to have a space where everybody does it together I think is something that we'll see a lot more of Um, so five bars that don't have space one one place might be able to say right this is we're just going to get together we'll use this soil put it back into our pots even if you don't have outdoor space to grow you might be just growing mint or basil or something simple so that you are really getting that benefit of full circle and you're seeing where your waste goes mm. I think it's much more important when it's tangible like when you can see it from beginning to end because normally we throw something away where you have that like throw away attitude and we don't really think about the next step so I think it's when you can see it when you can see the whole process it's um it helps it's quite gratifying I suppose yeah isn't it really it? is yeah, yeah. um you, you actually compost everything in house right James we did did we did yeah we did uh, we, we've changed a, a bit more of a commercial uh, composting now um, just because I wanted to incorporate the other restaurants and everything so it just kind of made sense for us um, and also the other the side we used to we've got a little garden area out the back behind our customer garden area with which we were composting and it just pests yeah mm. it's kind of like the only thing that it's a big problem yeah yeah we started seeing bits and i was like let's just we got to take it away because it's you know a problem um but there's some wicked solutions out there um i just decided to go for the i guess the easier one for the team to deal with um i used to go through the compost and find like lots of like chef spoons and stuff with it <laughs> <laughs> that's the um, thing you have a group of like 20 people trying to get to the same goal but it's not always going to be done right yeah. do you have to like mash it up before you compost it or do you have to like no, break yeah. it down into smaller pieces These ones I, I speak only from the experience of composting waste at home and failing epically on it every yeah, single time it might be all the starter. citrus sometimes it, yeah, it could be, yeah. <laughs> just put a piece of sourdough in there and then just, yeah, yeah yeah do you know one one thing i found never compost is avocado stones like I, oh yeah I, I can I, imagine I put them in there and it's like I go to like after you know six months of waiting for this beautiful compost to be made having these sort of grand plans about planting my vegetable patch in the garden all I find is like some partially composted dirt and a lot of avocado <laughs> stone <laughs> that tell you that yeah. maybe you shouldn't be eating the avocados yeah oh I know it's <laughs> not very sustainable is very, it very very far away <laughs> you're listening to Diageo Bar Academy's podcast Bar Chat 
Still to come. Bartenders, other than the person you buy coffee or tea from every day when you're out and about, see more individual personalities and people on a daily basis to inspire a change that could be as widespread as, say, something like getting rid of the straw. So speaking of like ingredients that we probably should be, this is actually a wonderful segue. There you go. I took one for the team just to segue onto my next point. (laughs) Um, Speaking about ingredients that we probably ought to be reducing our use of or keep an eye on where they're being sourced from. Lauren, since you're the first one to kind of flag my um, improper avocado use, can you think of any other ingredients besides avocados? Oh, do you know that I have a, a really bad love-hate affair with strawberries. I'm sure you knew this already. I have issues with strawberries. Mm -hmm. I taught an entire session at Barometer on how much I hate strawberries. (laughs) Um, And specifically because other than coffee and tea, it's probably, and sugarcane is probably one of the most widely planted ingredients around the world that is available in every market and available all year round, Mm. but only tastes good three weeks of the year. Mm, Yeah. So even even still at another session we were doing this week um, at a, a, a meeting, I walked in and there was like a plate of croissants and then a giant plate of white strawberries that only the tips were red. So delicious. And they said, yeah. aren't these lovely? And I'm like, yeah. oh my gosh. But people were eating them. People are forcing themselves to say, I love strawberries. And then they eat this thing that actually tastes probably more like an avocado stone, to be honest, <laughs> than it does like a strawberry. Um I, and, and it resonated earlier what, uh, what Jimmy said that, um, you know, you, you end up living regionally and you, you live uh, sustainably to the seasons and you have to incorporate that into everything that you're doing in your food and beverage programming. So, for example, if we want to continue to use fruit, we do have to think more mindfully at least six months in advance on when these things are in season, do we have the action plan of exactly what we're going to do in the timeline in which we're going to produce these products for the duration of its life on the menu. Um, and I think uh, that taking a more global approach if you know say the pina colada is a, is a great example pina colada is something that you can probably order in almost every country um but really only tastes good in a handful um and i don't think that say something like a, a canned modified coconut resembling product is the right way to make the best pina colada so if you're in the ukraine as ex- as an example we had a world-class competitor from two years ago that that said, well, this isn't really a pina colada. It's inspired by the pina colada, but we are making, um, you know, our our local version using rice milk because we grow rice here. We're using uh, apricots because that's what we grow here, and we're using an acidifier from a vinegar. Now it sounds completely crazy. But if you're a great bartender, you can make that delicious. And for him, even though it doesn't really closely resemble the pina colada, it is their way of creating something that feels more local celebration using regional ingredients and helping to, I guess, nudge the guest in a way that we make great things that are inspired by the things that grow where we live. And maybe you're missing that, you know, big fluffy drink in a giant sling glass with your paper straw and a giant piece of pineapple on the top. But here's like a different version that you can try Mm. inspired by where you live. Yeah. And of course, the other thing is like using local seasonal produce is going to benefit the flavor of your drinks massively as well, because everything tastes better when it's in season and when it's picked picked ripe and fresh, you know. Um, And I love that whole idea of kind of a local twist on a classic formula using those same like that sweet sour bitter whatever it is long fruity thick 
I'm describing a uh, pina colada here, obviously, <laughs> yes. but yeah. other, other cocktails uh, can also be applicable. Um, applying that same kind of formula and principle, but completely shifting all of the ingredients to something that is closer to you as an ingredient is such a great like if anyone entering a cocktail competition that's always a kind of as long as you can execute it well that's a great place to start in terms of kind of reimagining a classic cocktail i would say for sure and and when you you know when you have you know this giant competition like world class in 60 countries you the expectation as as well linda you've competed and tristan you've been a judge and i'm sure you've been involved in some way um jimmy jimmy was the uk winner a few years ago was it like seven it years ago? 2014, yeah. Six years ago. Yeah. yeah. I just missed you by a year. Yeah. So we didn't know each other during world class. But um, so you know that, you know, walking into that competition, you're A, as a competitor, thinking, how can I make something different than what everybody else is thinking, understanding that you're all basically on the same level of awesome. So if you are going to make the same thing, how do you make it the best of the two? And then from the judge's perspective, do you want to come, you know, halfway around the world, depending on where the global finals is located and have 60 rounds of the exact same drinks because everyone's obsessed with old fashions and pina coladas? You want variety and you want the story of, of where they where they come from yep. yeah so uh, well um a couple of the most successful ones we've done like twists on locals we did a, a corn star martini so i was using local pureed corn off the farm um gooseberry wine to get the tropical notes through and it basically made a really good yeah obviously vodka mm. base on it um served it with some english sparkling wine so our twist on a corn uh, porn star martini um so uh, you guys have all come prepared i believe with a drink that kind of embodies this sustainability angle and also i guess embodies your personality as bartenders and creatives that's right lauren yeah yep oh 100 <laughs> <laughs> um who's gonna go first jimmy do you want to do you want to go first yeah of course yeah, yeah. Okay, so this is another one of our kind of twists on a classic cocktail, um, a twist on the sex on the beach. Um, so this is called Seps on the Beach, um, using Talisker, obviously uh, Talisker on the Isle of Skye, um, some of the nicest beaches, rugged beaches in the world. Um, so we use Talisker Storm in this drink. Um, we've got Sep Vodka in it, which is made for us through a local distiller. Um, so we've got um, bleep, bleep mushrooms and seps that we foraged. Um, just to kind of play with that whole kind of, you know, that autumnal um, mushroom kind of red currenty kind of flavours that work really well with kind of game. Um, and then we've made a rose hip and red currant wine uh, to replace the cranberry juice that you'd normally use. And basically, essentially, that's all blended together to make our version of, uh, yeah, seps on the beach. Fantastic. Uh, right, let's try this drink. Um, Oh, yeah, you get the Talisker, definitely. There's a little bit of smoke yeah, there. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely worlds a bit different to uh, your typical sex on the beach that you expect. It's delicious. But Yum. That is really, really tasty. Yep. Mm, love it. The mushroom is amazing. Yeah. Mm. Well, pine mushrooms are so nutty. It's, um, yeah, it's the finish on it is amazing. That's the uh, sip of vodka in there. Can I taste it? Have, a, have yeah. a little smell or a taste, Jim. Yeah. It's really quite intense, and you almost get that chocolatey That's note, amazing. It, which works really well with the. Um, sorry, we also add an orange saccharum that we get. So um, we get we've got a green grocers a few doors up, and we take all their byproducts. Um, they've got an orange juicing machine in there, so we take the husks from there, and make our own marmalades and the saccharums from it. Nice. Um, it's good to talk to your local fruit and veg guys because they've often got stuff that's kind of going past it and bananas yeah. to make banana wine and you mm. know. what I'm getting from you guys as much as anything is like obviously the plastic thing is important but you don't want to get bogged down with just focusing on that it's so much it's, so much can be done by just reaching out to local suppliers mm. 
like minimizing that supply chain, minimizing the food miles, buying seasonally. And, you know, so much of the job is done for you at that point with the sustainability thing. And sustainability, the industry as well, and looking after farmers and being able to kind of, you know, using their byproducts and using their things that are rejected by markets. And, you know, we use eggs that can't go to market, pellet eggs, because supermarkets don't want them. They're not a standard size. So we use all those type of eggs in our, in our dishes. So yeah. it's all those little ways that we can just keep certain industries like the dairy industry or mm-hmm. you know your local fruit and veg farmer going um, like every summer we buy um like uh seconds of strawberries so they're called ugly strawberries and they're just like too ugly to go to supermarket people won't buy them even though they're like the tastiest uh, organic strawberries taste better don't they, they See, they're so good I'm saying about the and they're so much cheaper <laughs> and they just come in this big cardboard box mm-hmm. packed with strawberries and it's it's amazing to do it that way it's so much cheaper um it's incredible because it's just giving second life to something that, for some reason, is considered not good enough to go in. Would they have been turned into like strawberry jam or probably like pavlova? We do jams. We usually have like we. So when we're creating drinks, we'll always pick the ingredient first and then build around that. So we'll always have a strawberry drink on when it's in season. So um, we always build around that. So we kind of we'll always kind of know what preparation we need. Um, ahead of time and then an order for that mm. of course like, I mean you need to buy this stuff when it's in season but there's nothing stopping you like pickling it fermenting it preserving it oh. right for use because when you get to the winter you're basically fruit wise it's basically just apples right and pears that's kind mm. of it hey and yeah. like, other than that you're on like potatoes and carrots and what have you so um, yeah going back to those older kind of methods is, yeah. is really important I think it's something really cool like it's obviously that whole kind of kefir kombucha thing took off jams these are all incredible ways to mm to keep to store things <clears throat> and also knowing what to do with each say if you're dealing with a herb is it better dried like something like woodruff mm-hmm. that doesn't really smell of anything when it's fresh and then you dry it and it's got this amazing vanilla grassy note to it mm. that it otherwise wouldn't have so it's getting to know each ingredient and like what way to optimize it for storage mm-hmm. and it's exactly it's exactly what we talk about in in planning your menus six months in advance because um you know when i i haven't run a bar now in in about four years but back when I was running bars, it was changing in a hyper seasonal way to change the menu once every four weeks. And we could do that because we had a small enough list and we live in Vancouver and Vancouver is farm to table. I mean, this is, you know, something that was always very important with a hundred kilometer diet, hundred mile diet. So it's, uh, you know, I think being able to work as far in advance as possible and and see how you can treat them the best way because you're exactly right. I mean, there's certain things that are better treated in a way than others. I think when strawberries are in season, just to take them and and you know muddle them into a drink is actually kind of a disservice to the strawberry when there's so many other things that you could do when you could dry it and you know dehydrate it, make it into a tea or pickle it, make like an Indian quick pickle. So you do love lemon. strawberries. <laughs> this is what I'm saying for those three weeks. Okay, well in terms of that menu, it would have been for four weeks. But again, if you want to put something on your menu that celebrates an ingredient for you know six months or more, then you do have to think quite proactively ahead of time on how you would do that. Linda, you are involved in a new initiative called Makers of Marvellous, right? Can you tell us a little bit about with Kettle One, right? Yeah, so it's basically we were challenged to create a serve during World Class last year um, that was a twist on a classic that positively impacted your community. So when we deal with coffee, it's like Ireland coffee is just not, it doesn't grow there. It's just not it's not synonymous coffee, coffee doesn't grow in Ireland no it's weird, oh, right? leave it <laughs> where are you getting your coffee <laughs> <laughs> so 
So um, Eden project. So I wanted yeah. <laughs> to try and basically keep it really, really simple and celebrate an ingredient that's otherwise considered completely unusable. So the dandelion is probably one of the most well-known weeds in on the planet. It grows everywhere except for Antarctica. Every continent has it. So you know it's used on the bottle of weed killers. It's it's the weed. It's the king of weeds. <laughs> so yeah. I just wanted to like weed killer. <laughs> it's so true. The poor dandelion hey, it's I become know, the poster it's, child of the weed killing movement. Yeah. It's just not fair, is it? It's a beautiful plant. It's a beautiful plant. So I just wanted to celebrate it and I also just wanted to use it as a way of showing how much and how versatile plants are that maybe we haven't really explored properly yet. And also show that we can still create serves that look and taste quite similar to classics using what's right on our doorstep. So it was just a way of kind of really getting back to basics with that um, rather than like recreating something completely new. It was really about going backwards and and taking something that's always been around. It's been there as long as we have. And even though we are constantly trying to destroy weeds, um, really showing them for how like nutritionally, nutritionally dense they are, how beautiful they are, how tasty they are. So it was kind of about giving them new life. Fantastic. Do you make dandelion and burdock? No. That's one of my favourite. Classic favorite. combo. Oh, it's one of my favorite. I mean, I don't think it tastes like dandelion or burdock. No. But no. it's delicious. Although I do love, I do love burdock root. Yeah. Yeah. So it was about stripping back the plant and kind of figuring out like what each element or each part of it tasted like. So using the root raw, like it's really nutty, it's mm. really earthy. Then when you roast it, it's quite like coffee. Um, mm. It's quite acidic. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when you take the petals, they're a little bit citrusy, weirdly, and they're slightly honeyed. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you've got the leaf, which is like really salty, really bitter. So you've got everything that you need to make a really good drink in this just this one plant so mm. what I wanted to do is really showcase Kettle One through that mm. it's a bit like um, chicory coffee right I mean they mm, used to yeah, roast them yeah. because it tastes sort of slightly like coffee mm-hmm. an interesting thing happened I think it was during the first world war um they in the US they just couldn't get a supply of coffee because of obviously like trade issues um, so they started roasting chicory root and then everyone in America got a taste for it yeah. and then when coffee supplies resumed you still found that a lot of coffee still had chicory root in it because they'd become so accustomed and attached to that flavour it's funny it is really interesting well that's like the classic New Orleans drink I mean when you when you go for like the standard coffee and beignets in, in New Orleans anywhere in the French Quarter it's always chicory coffee it's never it's never standard coffee Laura like I mean, you get to travel to so many different markets, see all these different bars, bartenders, uh, you know, judging competitions, delivering seminars. Is there anything like that you've seen in particular, like really good initiatives on the sustainability angle that you think you could we might see more of in the future? What I, what I think is is quite amazing, and I, I always come back to to world class. I mean, when you when you've got a, a team of bartenders, 350,000 strong across 60 countries that all believe in the goodness of the same thing. And then, you know, you have a company like Diageo whose commitment to um, to sustainability and just an environmental practice is so evident from from the top down with each one of our brands. Um, it's it's great that in the educational programs that we build with World Class, which is World Class Studios, that we always have an underpinning of sustainable and environmentally focused programming. And, you know, I think to to the point on Kettle One, uh, with Kettle One drinking marvelously is such a is such a beautiful campaign. And before that it was sort of it was being teed up with single ingredient focused modules that we were teaching around the world. Um and before that uh we had uh, actually I'm sorry, it was just after that we um we started the the sweet spot which was now focused on 
uh, honey and community development and working with beekeepers and actually the difference in not only glycemic index of how sugar actually compares up to other sweeteners, but how we can focus more on our local and supporting community for initiatives that would benefit your guests and other bartenders. So I think just even something like that, just on Kettle One, or even um, just our a commitment to you know how we're reducing packaging also helps to inspire and inform what other bartenders are doing in in different cities around the world. And I I think at the global finals we really see that come to life. And you only really get to see sixty of those twenty five thousand bartenders. I think the the other ones that make it to the the national finals in each one of their cities and and countries. We're, we're talking, you know, 60 to 100. And in the case of maybe the United Kingdom or the US or Australia, the numbers are upwards of, you know, five, 600 entries, people that are doing the same things, like committed to the same principles of, um, you know, creating these environmentally conscious or community focused programs. And I do think that, you know, bartenders are probably other than the person you buy coffee or tea from every day when you're when you're out and about see more individual personalities and people on a daily basis to inspire a change that could be as widespread as say something like getting rid of the straw. So, um, while world-class as, uh, you know, individually with, you know, with, with cocktails and, and programs, I think it's the, the individual bartender, we're creating a platform that allows them to, to bring these stories to life that really do implement, implement a massive change, which may have started as a tiny seed in the beginning. Yeah, and I almost think that we need to stop making a feature out of sustainability. Um, he says, as we record the sustainability podcast, <laughs> yeah. it, just needs to, it just needs yeah. to underline everything. Um, yeah. So it needs to be part of any conversation that we have around flavor, ingredients, sourcing, all that stuff. It, it should be, and, and about bars themselves, yeah. it should be ever present, and mm-hmm. indeed spirits producers too. Yeah. Um, Linda, Linda, (laughs) (laughs) Linda, have you got a drink uh, for us? I do, I do. I have um, my Kettle One and um, a dandelion. It's uh, Kettle One on its own. And then I've used Kettle One as a base for a liqueur. So I've infused the petals and the leaf into the vodka. And then I've decocted or simmered the raw root and used that as the water phase, added a small amount of sugar. And then on top of that, to try and bring out those coffee flavours I've roasted that same root and then um, simmered that down so that makes a a coffee substitute Mm -hmm. Um, and then to garnish that uh, I take the root back out dehydrate it again and just powder that on top because I think it's really important that we have that kind of contact with the like when we're talking about dandelions like that it's a little bit tangible like people can see the colour this is what it looks like sometimes drinks like this won't feel that accessible or like that anybody can do it because they're just a little bit different uh, so I've printed on um, seed paper these um, just the benefits and like breaking down what the dandelion is um, on each phase like what the leaf tastes like what the root tastes like um, and how the treatments change that so can I plant this in the flower box at the top of Oxford Circus Station exactly yeah <laughs> good luck making it grow there right? yeah. <laughs> I think yeah. it can it might need more help <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so pretty much it looks like you could put it in a coupon. Someone would be like, that's them. And that's martini. Yeah. Uh, so it's just trying to replicate it, not move too far away from the classic. Oh, yeah, it smells really <laughs> roasty. It's got, it smells like a, more chocolatey than coffee, I would say. Yeah. Oh, wow. And the taste, yeah, I mean, you would think there's coffee in that drink yeah. or chocolate or both. Yeah. yeah. 
It's like a sweet sort of stout type flavour. I wonder is there it's an Irish malty. connection in there? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, was, I often wonder whether people like it's in very their sort multi. of creative Yeah, multi is multi. When the sort of creative process, mm. like inadvertently, like without will, kind of gravitate towards flavours that are familiar. I think we do. Yeah. I definitely think we do. Even with something that's a little bit different, like a dandelion, I think we'll always again like it has so many preparations, but you're still trying to pull those things that we know those flavors yeah, that flavors we know out of it enjoy. Yeah. yeah it's one of the interesting things about spirits production i think is like when you get a non-traditional um country or place producing a spirit in like tasting what they make as opposed to everyone else you often tend to find those like national local or indigenous flavors working their way into the product yeah and that's one of the cool things about um making making alcohol really um so I was just thinking, like, you guys are obviously, Linda and um, James, you're kind of real pioneers of this whole movement um, of, of sustainability, I, I would say. Like, really, your bars are kind of going the extra mile to integrate a lot of these policies to really make a change. And I'm sure you're influencing other bars and restaurants as a result. How is it that you go about um, instilling this same sort of passion into the teams? How do you do? You have training programs for this kind of thing, or is it you know you're 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 this is your first day on the job? Get with the program or get out. <laughs> um, well, for us, it's um, because we rotate our menu four times a year, so we'll always have like one big training session with the launch of each menu, and we go through everything from beginning to end with all of our staff. Um, but in terms of um, that kind of passion and stuff, I think that it's so inherent. In, like definitely in Ireland, we've never really truly moved away from that like local sustainable vibe. We've never fully so like going back to it, it's not that difficult for us. Like Cork, especially where Cask is, is is such like a farmer town. It's farmers markets are still thriving. That like local source is is something that's kind of ingrained in people. Mm-hmm. So it's not really something that we need to kind of like fire up in people. But it is trying to. Get, keep people curious. I think is like one of the one of the main things, and like experimenting is is the only way that we do this. So it's kind of like encouraging that mm-hmm. in in everyone. And I think for me, it's um, doing exactly what we've been talking about for Reddit is actually getting out and talking to people. And I think you know that's the most important thing. So taking my team foraging, um, letting them meet the farmers, and kind of basically just taking that little tour around the farm and seeing what we can do with different products. And that kind of is the best kind of training I think you can give anyone. It's just experience and actually seeing it firsthand. And then as soon as we go back to the office. Yeah, um, just creating really fun products, and that's going to be reflected in like the quality of the service as well, right? Because once you've kind of experienced that farm to glass thing as a bartender or a waiter or chef or whatever it might be, you're going to then be instilled with that knowledge. You're going to want to pass that on to the guest, and that's going to improve guest experience, hopefully. Yeah, unless you're really boring, and uh, <laughs> and then and you know, and so that just works well for everyone, doesn't it? Yeah, indeed. And like I said, it's not easy. You're going to have to make things a few times to get them right but that's all part of the process and they kind of it's their product at the end you know it's the Mm. bartender's drink and they kind of get closer to it when they've used all these different ingredients that they've made and foraged and got from the farm themselves so it's great Lauren you got a drink you're gonna make us maybe (laughs) (laughs) if I ask nicely um I, I think part of making uh drinks in a more sustainable fashion as well is is we want to inspire our guests at the bar to be able to attempt to make them at home um and they don't have to make exactly what we make in the bars. Otherwise, um, uh, you know, you lose like the, the love and the excitement of coming into bars. So I feel like, you know, really simple drinks. And, you know, when we're being sustainable, we also want to be 
uh, quite mindful of how much we're drinking, how often we're drinking, and what exactly we are drinking. So we have a, we have a really beautiful uh, vermouth that is now part of our portfolio called Balthazar. And what I really love about it is... Um, is that the vermouth itself, although it is wine-based and uh, with several botanicals, um, making a, an, an extremely lovely example of a red vermouth, I love that they are not sweetening it with cane sugar. They are sweetening it with grape must or the unfermented portion of uh, grape juice that is not used to make the wine uh, that goes into making the vermouth itself. So it feels like you're helping in a different way and adding a different type of uh, sweetener as well, which I think is nice. And I think just doing like, just honestly, just like a vermouth and tonic is, is really just quite lovely. Mm. Um, and I am a huge fan of no and low drinks. And um, I find that I drink highballs probably more than uh, any other beverage uh, these days, whether it be Johnny Walker or even the Kettle Botanical is uh, is is quite awesome, um, and those are new, you know, thirty percent ABV um, spirit drinks that we've created with uh, Kettle One, which is lovely. Um, and this, I mean, when I say it's basic, it is like so basic, and you know, we can spruce it up with some bitters, but it's literally just Balsazar Red Vermouth and tonic, and then on top we'll just put some bitters, and these ones are um, inspired by. Moroccan lemons and spices. There's no sugar and no coloring in the bitters. So then you have this, um, you know, just sort of a nice change. And this is something that anybody can make at home. But I just think it's, uh, you know, as as um, chefs and bartenders and, and people in our industry, we, we want to make more of a, you know, concerted effort to, to be a bit more um, sustainable with the choices we're making, even in, in how we drink and how we're suggesting to people that they should be making drinks and um, something simple. It's really delicious. Mm. The bitters yeah, really on top good. are very nice as well. So where do you guys see the future of this going? What do you hope to see? Are there any new initiatives that you're exploring or that you've seen out there that you think are going to really take hold and be have be, be really impactful in terms of sustainability um, future? I guess it's going to be interesting to see what um, the spirit brands do in terms of packaging um, and maybe whether they will come in bigger reusable containers. I've heard of a few brands who are looking at, we're already doing it, mm -hmm. but um, that would be really interesting and fun to see how that can kind of operate and actually become logistical, um, mm. like your kegs of beer and your kegs of cider. Mm. So that would be really good to see. And that's pretty much one of the only things that we do have as waste is, is glass bottles from spirits. Interesting. That's fun. Yeah. And it will be interesting to see because there's such a movement now that's coming from all levels. You know, we've talked about supply chain. We've talked about bars and restaurants and bartenders, you know, creating um, new initiatives to celebrate sustainability and, and reduce their impact on the planet. And yeah, we I think we have to look the whole way up the supply chain, you know, right through to the farming of the base materials that are going into these products and look at the practices, look at what effect it's having on soil, biodiversity, you know, and so on. Um, and, these, you know, these are big topics of discussion amongst us. And so it has to be the case that spirit brands are looking at it, too, I think. And from, you know, from a Diageo perspective, we've drastically reduced uh, the, the number of, you know, single-use plastics and the, while the brands are beautiful and they need to pop off the shelf, um, they, they are aspirational that the, you know, even the packaging, the, the boxes that, like, say, Tank Ray 10 comes in, for example, the, the, the glass is all recyclable, the packaging is 
almost all recyclable. Um, and, and also the big focus for us, um, you know, as, as representing all the brands, is that focusing more on the community within that supply chain mm-hmm. is the most important and, and creating, you know, healthier communities that are within the supply chain of each of our brands. And doing things like Diageo Bar Academy and doing things like, you know, world-class studios in, in an effort to help educate in, you know, the wider bar industry is really, really important. Yeah, well, this is the thing. I mean, sustainability, we, you know, when we summarize it and we defined it at the start of this podcast, we were sort of thinking about how a bar can impact their local community um, and you know what they can do to reduce their waste and their co2 but of course there are other communities involved in this as well and the sustainability of those communities that are growing sugarcane growing corn mm-hmm. whatever it might be the distillers that are making it um, the logistics network that transports it to and from the distillery to you know to suppliers they have to be sustainable as well, right? And we have to make sure that people are being paid a fair price for what they're doing and that it's supporting, you know, productivity and happiness, really, amongst the people that are making it. Yeah, exactly. So before I let anyone leave the studio, it is um, customary for me to ask uh, some quick-fire questions, okay? We're going to have to be pretty quick because there's three of you. Um, and these are the same questions that get asked to absolutely every single person that, that comes in and records on the podcast with me. And by the way, you can elaborate on your answers if you want. It doesn't have to be a one word, but um, for the benefit of time, might be better. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Favorite cocktail of all time? Bucare. Bucare. Oof. Um, Manhattan. Same as me. Negroni. Negroni. Okay. Mm. Cool. Three different answers. That's pretty good. Um, Manhattan Negroni come up a lot. And martini, <laughs> obviously. So. Uh, the cocktail that needs burying. You never want to see it again or hear its name uttered. I mean, prior to Saps on the Beach, I would have said a Saps on the Beach. <laughs> it's been revitalized yeah, there with we mushrooms, go. though. Yeah. I think it's badly made hurricane. Oh, yeah. That's a tricky one, isn't it? Just go with the Bronx. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I really don't know. Um, oh, yeah, you're too nice. There's too many twists, aren't there, these days? Yeah. It's kind of like... Anything with more than seven ingredients. Yeah, exactly. While tiki yeah. drinks came up, have come up in the past, um, yeah, lots and lots of ingredient drinks, yeah. All right, cool. We'll move on. Um, doesn't your, fa- your favorite bar, the bar you would most like to... If you had to drink in only one bar for the rest of your life, which bar would it be? I'm going to have to get American bar. Your American so bar, probably. yep. It's a good shout. I'm going to twist it up, you know. I'm going to say uh, Carnaval in Lima, Peru. Oh, okay. I've not been there. Owned by uh, Aaron Alavos Diaz, who's the former... Uh, he used to work at uh, Aviary, and he's got this like really cool sustainable water program that leaves all of his ice wells, and then filters back and feeds into his ice room where mm. he is an ice chef. Mm. It's a cool. Wow. It's a really cool venue. Though. Pretty cool. Yeah. I I think for me like probably Dante, and it's just because I've enjoyed it so much at like different times of day. It's like it doesn't matter what time of the day it is. It's it's a really cool spot. Well, it is the world's best bar. It right? is. And it, mm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then final question. Um, if you're you're working a bar shift and you've got to pick one wingman as your bar back stroke assistant stroke <laughs> co-bartender. And this can be a bartender, a dead, dead or alive, or it can be anyone. It could be any person from history or even someone fictional. Who would you have on board? Tim Phillips. <laughs> okay, good shout. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to have to go Jamie Oliver. 
Oh, okay. That's a curveball. <laughs> yeah, complete curveball. But he's just, he's, he's one of those guys that is just massively inspired my industry. Yeah. Uh, my, well, me in the industry. Yeah. And um, he'd just be a barrel of laughs. I've never really met him properly. I just think it'd be really fun. I'm sure it would, yeah. yeah. I'm going to say someone I do actually work with. His name's Daniel Conan. And he's a... Uh, He's he's definitely my like my right hand man. He's he's fab. Wow, one, of, one of the most fun people to work. I with. I hope he feels privileged because out of any person in history, dead or alive, and even in fiction, <laughs> oh, you don't put me on the spot. <laughs> even even any imaginary person, you have picked him. He's wow. all he's almost imaginary though, if that makes any sense. Uh, and you get to work with him every single day. You are living <laughs> your best really? life. Okay, um, guys. I think we'll call it a day there. That was fantastic. I learned a lot. Um, super inspired to go off and integrate some more sustainable practice into my venues, that's for sure. Um, I want to thank you all so much for coming in and bid you farewell. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank, thank you very you. much. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Bar Chat. Visit diageobaracademy.com for access to more podcast episodes and exclusive content. See you next time.